Well, good morning, Lakeview family, and good morning especially to those who came to watch live today. Um, we are doing our sixth edition of our series, Heart of Judgment, where we have been studying through uh, the book of Micah. And actually, this week we are starting the third and final section of the book of Micah. If you remember, the, the first two chapters were a picture of God coming down um, in judgment against his people, like a, a miniature sun coming not to um, destroy Israel's enemies, but to bring judgment on the people themselves. And then in chapters 3 and three through 5, we saw that God is promising to, um, looking at the corruption of the people in that day, he's promising to bring about a new day where his people will be regathered as a remnant, where they will be um, saved to him, uh, where they will be living in peace and security. Um, but he promises that the way they're going to get there is kind of an unexpected path. Um, it goes through uh, situations you wouldn't think God was going to use. It, it's going to involve the fall of the current nation and going into exile. And only from that place is God going to rescue his people. He's going to send a ruler to come and, and bring about all of his promises. But it's going to be a ruler unlike any we've seen before, establishing a kingdom unlike any human kingdom, going through a path unlike any path that's been, uh, that you would have, have expected. And now in chapter 6 and 7, we're going to zoom back to Micah's day. Um, in chapter 6, we're going to see today God is bringing his judgment on this current time. And then in chapter 7, we're going to see Micah's response to that judgment and to all that he's heard in the rest of the chapter. And um, just as we get started, I want to say chapter 6 is a heavy chapter. Um, there's not a lot of hope or light in this chapter itself. It's about judgment and justice. But I hope that we can see today that, that that's actually a good thing. We want the kind of justice and judgment that we find in this chapter. We, we may not want it to be the whole story or the end of the story, but, but we need this part here. This is not only necessary, but it's actually a good thing. Um, and so I hope we can see that today. Um, as we're starting here, this, the picture is going to be set is the picture of sort of a cosmic courtroom. Um, where God is coming and declaring his verdict and his indictment against his people um, in, in a sort of courtroom setting. Let's read these first couple verses to set the stage. It says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. When God comes to bring his judgment, he, he doesn't come in front of a jury box or the, the elders in the city as you might find in a human court, but he comes before the mountains themselves. They're giving witness to the rightness of the justice and the judgment that he is bringing. There's sort of a sense here that, that this Justice is a universal, a, a cosmic justice. Anyone would recognize that this is just the right thing. God's justice is objectively, universally just. And, and we want to see that kind of justice come in stories. It, courtroom scenes are often used in books and movies kind of as the final scene. 
um, that, to kind of bring a verdict or a finality to the story that you've been watching all along, right? You, you've been watching these characters, you've been seeing how they're interacting, how um, they're, they're manipulating one another or trying to do what's right, they're lying or trying to tell the truth. You've got an idea of who um, is guilty and who deserves to pay and, and you come to this courtroom scene and what you're looking for is justice to be done. Right. Sometimes we see that justice actually happen. Right? The, the case of, of Larry Nasser, where um, this man who abused hundreds of young girls not only gets a life sentence, but the judge actually allows nine days for 209 of his victims to come and give a statement to the world exposing what he has done and the pain it has caused them. And, and you get just a sense that, that this was justice. But we know sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you walk out of the courtroom and, and it doesn't feel like justice has been done. Sometimes that's be because you, you know what justice was and it just wasn't done. You think of the book To Kill a Mockingbird and um, clearly at the end of that, justice is not done. Right? Despite all that you've seen all along of the innocence of Tom Robinson, this black man who's been accused... And the compelling case that Atticus Finch gives at the end of the story, the jury convicts him basically just because he's a black man. Right? You walk out of that scene and justice was not done and that's clear. But, but sometimes you walk out of a courtroom and it feels like justice may not have been done because it just wasn't clear what justice was. Right? You're just not sure... You, you maybe didn't have enough facts or you weren't sure if this person was trustworthy or, or maybe they did something, but you're not sure if the sentence really fit the crime. You're just uncertain that justice was really done in that moment. And I think, honestly, sometimes when we read judgment passages in the Bible, we can walk away kind of feeling that way. But it's not super clear that justice was not done. But it, it just, we don't feel clear that that, that was right or that that was necessary? Were the people really as bad as that passage made them out to be? Was, was the verdict, the judgment God declared really necessary in that moment? Um, we, don't, you know, we don't want to say God is unjust, but it just doesn't feel clear. We don't get that moment of like, yes, that was the right thing that we're looking for. I think in these passages, though, we need to be careful that, that the reason we feel that way isn't because we just jumped in at the last scene. We just came in at the end of the movie and heard the judgment and said, like, I don't, how do you know? Are you sure that's what should happen? Right? Micah 6 is coming at the end of hundreds of years of interaction between God and his people. Right? This is the end of the story, the conclusion, not the beginning. And if you've been watching the story all along, as Micah is about to remind us, you'll see that, that God has not failed. This justice is clear and this is what is deserved. No one will be able to say God has done the wrong thing and, and the book of Micah or chapter 6 is going to be structured as a series of arguments where God says here is why the justice I'm bringing is right. He's going to give three arguments for why he's bringing the judgment that he's coming and then give a final verdict declaring the, the consequence, the sentence for his people. The first of those arguments is just what I mentioned. It is a review of the history between God and his people, really investigating the question, has God been unfaithful? Is there any blame assigned to God in the current situation that his people are facing? So it's what he says, starting in verse 3. 
O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God here goes back to the foundational events of the relationship he's established between himself and his people. When he brought them out of slavery in Egypt and made them a people to himself, establishing his covenant with them. And then he reminds them how he brought them safely through the wilderness, defending them from nations like Moab and the king of King Balak, who wanted to bring curses on his people, and God turned them into blessing. Um, even reminding them that he brought them all the way to the promised land, Shittim being the, the camp just before they go across into the Jordan, across the Jordan River, and, and Gilgal being the place on the other side where they renew the covenant. So he's reminding them of the foundation, the, what he has done to establish them as a people, to bring them safely all the way to the land that he promised them. Now, if you heard this example in Micah's day, you might have a question saying, yeah, okay, that's great, but that was kind of a long time ago. That was hundreds of years ago. What, what have you done for me lately, God? You see these Assyrians we got going on here? There's, what about these problems? But, but God is bringing this up not, not to say, this is the only thing I've done for you, and, and that should have been enough. He's, he's kind of giving this the same way that um, if you were in an argument with your mom, she might bring up, I, I gave birth to you. Right. Hopefully what your mom is saying in that moment is not, I gave birth to you and that's enough. I didn't have to do anything else. Right. She's saying this is the basis of our relationship. This was the foundation. This is who I am to you and who I've continued to be relating to you, giving of myself for your good. at cost to myself supporting and caring and giving life to you. That's what God is saying. This is the basis of our relationship and how I've continued to relate to you. Even as, as the cross is the basis of the Christian's relationship to God today, it's the foundational event that establishes our relationship and it sets the pattern for how God has continued to relate to us along the way. I think it's helpful to see that God gives this kind of evidence when considering whether he has done right by us. Because sometimes we want to bring God into a courtroom just like this. We've got things going on in our lives. We've got problems that we, we want to, God to answer for. Why have you not fixed this problem? Whatever the Assyrian is in your life today, you want God to answer. And, and God in that moment doesn't just act like an abstract concept. His faithfulness to you isn't just an a intellectual idea. It's got substance. It's got evidence that he could bring forth in that courtroom and say, I have done all this for you. For the Christian, I have gone to the cross for you. And if you'll review your life from the time since then, you'll see I've continued to relate to you on the basis of grace. Maybe I haven't fixed the problem you want to accuse me of today. But do you see my righteousness, my faithfulness, my goodness toward you? No one is going to get to the final courtroom with God and be able to say that God has done them wrong. And that's not going to be an abstract concept simply because God can do no wrong. 
There's going to be evidence he can bring in that day to say, do you remember how I've done this? Do you remember how I've done this? Do you remember how I've been faithful and continued to care for you? God has evidence that he has not failed his people in this moment. And then he brings his second argument to say that he has not only not failed his end, but he has not asked too much of his people. The voice in verse 6 is going to change and sort of like God bringing a kind of key witness to the court here. It's going to be um, like a, a hypothetical rhetorical device as if a worshiper was coming to say, what has God asked of his people? His key witness comes and demonstrates that God has not asked anything unreasonable. He's not angry with his people for failing to meet a standard they never could have kept. Starting in verse 6. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This key witness, hypothetical worshiper, comes and, and gives a list of, his, is this what God has required? And kind of increasing up to the ridiculous increments. First, he, he gives a, a pretty normal sin offering. Is this what God has required, that we bring a calf a year old? Um, that's, that's, not a, that's a reasonable, not cheap, but, but pretty normal sin offering that people would have brought. And then he levels it up and he says, no, does God require 1,000 rams? And you think of the kingly offering of David, where he did bring 1,000 rams and sacrificed them sort of at the dedication of the materials for the temple and um, in hopes for his son Solomon coming on the throne. And that's a, that's a like millions of dollars kind of level. Is that what God has required of us? And then he goes to the absurd. What about 10,000s of rivers of oil? Just a ridiculous amount. Is, is that what God has said? Is something that no one could ever bring? And then really the ultimate here in a kind of a darker note, um, or the firstborn for my transgression, is actually a practice of the pagan nations around. That, that the way that they would please their gods or, or buy his favor was by offering something of themselves. Their, their children, their own flesh. They would walk them through the fire and that was what they thought their gods required of them to be satisfied. Is, is that what God has required of his people? Something that's, that's sort of dark and horrible? And, and the answer is no. God has not required any of those sorts of things. What he's required is something no one could object to. Simply being right. Simply doing Justice, loving mercy in this cosmic courtroom. The mountains would recognize. The objective justice would be, of course, that's what you should do. God has simply required you to be what he made you to be. To be holy people walking humbly with him, doing justice. Every person can recognize this is a reasonable standard. Just as every person can recognize, none of us will meet it. Paul fleshes out this idea in Romans 2 where he's, he's 
drawing on the idea that no one is going to stand before God and say, I have not failed, I have not done what is wrong. Even people who don't know the law, don't know the, the list of requirements that he has given, know that they are without excuse. This is how he says it briefly in Romans 2, 1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Right? Every one of us judges that there is right and that there is wrong. That's, that's not in question. We all know that. And, and while we might make excuses for ourselves or kind of argue about exactly where the line is, at the end of the day, we all know we do not do what we know is right. No one is going to get before God and say, I've lived up to your standard. No one's going to get before God and say, your standard was unreasonable. In the, in the final courtroom, when we stand before Christ the judge, all he will need to say is, did you do justice? Did you love mercy? And every one of us will stand condemned by that argument. So we see God is cutting off the defenses that his people might bring against the judgment he's bringing in Micah 6. He's, it's not that he has failed. It's not that he has required too much of them. And finally, God's argument is, it's not wrong to bring judgment. In fact, it would be wrong not to judge what is truly wicked. Verse 9, God speaking again says, The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it, sound, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasure of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that, it accur accursed, that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? This third argument, this sort of question is, is really very simple. But is it right of God not to judge the injustice, the oppression of the poor, the mistreatment, the abuse of power that we have seen throughout the rest of the book? And it's a simple argument. No, it would not be right for God to ignore those things. And yet we recognize there's a, there's a complex reality here when we're relating to God around his judgment of sin. Because to ask the question, can God not bring judgment, the flip side of that would be to ask the question, can God forgive? And, and we see that there's a tension in this story that we've been seeing all along, ever back since Exodus 34, when God brings the people out of Egypt and he appears before Moses. This is how he describes himself. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. It almost seems like there's a... a tension within God himself, right? That, that this exploring, how can both of these things be true? Is God going to forgive your sin or is he going to bring judgment on your sin? How, what, what is God describing about himself here? And we know how this tension gets resolved, right? It's resolved in Christ. Romans 3 is describing how God has accomplished both, how he has both forgiven and brought justice. Kind of 
piecing together some of the verses here in 24 to 26, he says, We are saved through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Right? In sending Christ to the cross, God has found a way to bring both forgiveness and justice. And I think when we talk about this, we tend to emphasize the forgiveness part. Right? And, and that's right, and that's good. That's the surprising moment. That's, the, the, that's our hope. That's what we rejoice in. But we need to make sure that when we see this, we don't see only that we are justified, but we see the justice. We see that justice is necessary. When we read Micah 6, we cannot let the knowledge of coming forgiveness, the coming promise of redemption even, make us forget the need for justice on the evil that we have seen throughout this book. Justice is a good thing and we need to know that our God is just because there are realities in this world that demand justice. In college, I knew a girl, she's part of our small group, who'd been the victim of sexual assault. And she genuinely struggled with this question. I heard her ask, what if God forgives him? What if God forgives the man who did that to me? How do you, how do you answer that question? If we run too quickly to forgiveness, and forgiveness needs to be a part of that story, but if we run there too quickly, what we're implicitly saying is that that thing doesn't matter as much as you feel it does. It wasn't maybe really that bad. It doesn't demand the justice that you feel it does. We can diminish the wrong. When we see injustice in the world, we need to be clear that our God demands absolute justice for every wrong. When we look at the cross, we need to see not only the forgiveness of God, but the bloody requirements of his justice. We should look at that and say, that's what sin cost. That's what my sin cost. There's joy and victory and hope in the cross, but there's also a soberness that we should look at this and say, this is what our God requires. This is what justice demands. The Bible never diminishes the requirement for justice. That's what Exodus 35, that's what Micah 6, that's what Romans 3 are all telling us. No sin will ever be dismissed by God. God hears the blood that cries from the ground of genocides like the Khmer Rouge and the Holocaust. He counts the tears of his image bearers chained in slave ships, of children growing up in abusive home, and he will demand payment for every tear, for every wound. Even our forgiveness was bought by the bloody death of an innocent man. And we can tell every victim with confidence that God promises justice will always be done. He will not forget the treasure of the wicked. He will not acquit deceitful weights. And that 
justice is what we see coming in the rest of Micah 6. These last verses are the final time God directly speaks in the book. This is his sort of final word for this moment. In chapter 7, we're going to hear Micah, the prophet, responding to what God has revealed. But God is not going to address his people again. And his final word, the verdict we get at the end of this courtroom scene, is unequivocal. The people are guilty. And the punishment is desolation. Verse 12. Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. God here is summarizing the sin that's been detailed throughout the book of Micah. The, the violence of the rich, he references here, ties back to the mistreatment of the poor and the abuse of power we saw in chapters 2 and 3. And the references here to Omri and Ahab, kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, have a really similar indictment in, embedded in them. These are arguably the worst kings in recorded history of Israel. Um, 1 Kings 16 describes them this way. Verse 25 says, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. And then just five verses later, verse 30, and Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Right, so Omri is the worst one so far, and then Ahab is even worse than that. And if you read through the seven chapters were given in 1 Kings detailing all of the evil that they did and the way God interacted with them through characters like the prophet Elijah. We see this was a dark time and it really mirrors what, has been, what Micah has been calling out in the people of his day. We see that Omri and Ahab erected false idols. They abandoned the worship of God with Baal and Asherah. We see also that they abused their power to oppress the poor. Probably the most famous story of that is the story of Ahab and Naboth. 1 Kings 21. Ahab looks out from his castle and says, sees Naboth's vineyard and says, I want that vineyard. That's a nice vineyard. So he goes to Naboth and says, sell me your vineyard. And Naboth says, I can't sell you my vineyard. This is my family's ancestral land. I can't give that up. And so Ahab goes back and pouts on his couch until his wife, Jezebel, comes and finds him. And, and when she finds out the problem, she comes up with a plan. She goes and gets two men to be false witnesses against Naboth, declaring that he had blasphemed God. And the punishment for blasphemy is death, stoning. And, and that's what happens. Naboth gets stoned. And now once he's dead, Ahab can simply go and take the vineyard that he wanted. He abuses his power to get what he wants. Very much like what we heard God indicting his people of doing against the poor, taking their land, taking their houses, taking their possessions. This is exactly what is happening in this day. And so God says he is bringing 
desolation. Right? And we've already seen that there's going to come an ultimate desolation on the people. That Israel is going to be plowed like a field. That the leader is going to be struck with a rod. That the walls are going to fall and they're going to go to exile in Babylon. That's probably what it means at the end here when the people are going to become a hissing. Right? People are going to talk about what happened in Jerusalem and they're just going to go... That's, that's, that's the kind of tone you're going to get when you remember what happened to God's people. The des- ultimate desolation he's going to bring. But you also get a picture that there's, even now, a partial desolation. Right? That they are depicted as, being, as um, eating and still being hungry. Putting away, but not preserving. Sowing, but not reaping. That, that the work that they're doing, even in Micah's day, is going to end in futility. Because of the the sword and the problems with Assyria around, because of um, the economic situation that they were in, maybe just because God's hand was directly against individuals in moments that, that they will not prosper. It's going to remain a difficult, fearful situation that they have been in. That's where they're going to stay. Now we still know the promised hope is coming. The redemption promised in chapters 4 and 5 is still coming. We can still hope in that. And when Micah responds, he's going to interact with both the current desolation and the future hope. But don't skip too quickly to that hope. It is good for us to contemplate the severity of the judgment and the justice that we see in Micah 6. If we're going to understand the God whom we relate to, we need to have a picture of him that's big enough to encapsulate desolation. We need to understand who he is, and this chapter helps us see a fuller picture of how this God is also the same God who brings forgiveness, who brings eternal, everlasting love. If we're going to understand what he's accomplished in the gospel, we need to understand the darkness of judgment, the punishment that we have been spared. And if we're going to understand the rest of this book, Micah 7, we need to understand the severity of God's word in chapter 6 to understand how Micah responds next week in chapter 7. We need to understand that he's seeing both the promise of rescue in chapter 5 and the desolation of the current moment in chapter 6 to give the response of faith that we see in chapter 7. So I hope you'll come back with us next week as we finish this study and get through Micah chapter 7. Thanks for joining.